This is Charles Hayne. I'm here with George Edelman for the No Film School podcast for the week of September 26, 2019. We're here with a whole bunch of good stuff today. We're talking about what to do when a company you work with goes bankrupt. We're talking about Ad Astra and combining film and digital capture into one crazy unified platform. In tech news, Blackmagic is not neglecting the 4K. They're rolling out a whole host of new features for the Pocket 4K. And then we've got an Ask No Film School about producing for television. All that this week on the No Film School podcast with Charles Hayne and... George Edelman. So, top story this week, and it is a story that, God, I wish we didn't have to report. However, we have to report, and we've got to talk about, and that is Distriber going bankrupt. So if you don't know Distriber, uh, in order to get into a lot of the, you know, the dream of digital distribution was, I make my feature film, I put it up on uh, Amazon and iTunes, and it just makes money for me. That was the dream. In reality, platforms like uh, VOD, especially like, uh, if you're talking about cable VOD, when you're when you're browsing cable and you see all those movies on uh, video on demand on cable or iTunes or Amazon, in order to get on all those platforms, you usually have to work with a third party distributor of some sort, an aggregator, some sort of company that interfaces with Amazon and iTunes and makes sure that the movies are up to snuff and formatted properly and properly meta tagged and all those things organized. Distriber was one of those companies very popular in the indie space, really focused on helping you make the most of your VOD uh, distribution. It appears, and we say it appears because as is often the case with a company going bankrupt, there's no statement yet. It appears distriber distribbed. Is there a good, is there a good, it distributed its last movie. Um, there's some, please Twitter help me with what would have been a better pun there. It got distrubbed out. Yeah. D- Ooh, there we go. Uh, George wins the p- pun of the week. We need an award for pun of the week because, well, except we would do it even if there was no award. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But distributor distrubbed out. I, I really dug. So, um, I mean, look, it, we, we should also, I mean, we have to make jokes because that's what we do here, but it also kind of hurts because anytime a business goes bankrupt, like sucks. Like, it sucks for the executives. It sucks for the staff. The whole thing is a fucking mess and a nightmare. So for all you distributor employees who are going through the shit show right now of thinking you had a job and then your company disappearing, sorry for our jokes. Hopefully you can laugh at our jokes and it helps. And and I'd also just add to that, for those people who are confused about what's happened to their films, where they are, where their money may be, that they may be owed, there's a lot of... Uh, confusion. The first tip we had on this uh, was through Alex Ferrari of the Indie Film Hustle podcast, but uh, Ryan Koo brought it to my attention. But I had, it's been floating around, like there's been conversation of it in the community. And everyone I've brought it up to has also said, yeah, I've heard that. But I don't know the full details yet. So so we know the Twitter is down. We know people went to their physical offices and their offices were emptied out. So we know that is all the internet knows right now. So the first thing we should talk about is we should talk about in the global sense for all filmmakers, whether or not you're working with distributor or not, people going to go bankrupt. That's going to happen. And when I owned a production company, I remember one of our big clients went bankrupt on like a Thursday and like word spread through all of LA, all of the companies that worked with them. know. I'm not going to say their name just because I don't want to shame them, but it was like, we were immediately on the phone 
and then in a car to head over to the offices to talk to the people there to make sure that we were in the list. Because, you know, the worst case scenario is a company goes out of business and no one gets paid. What sometimes happens is a company goes out of business and some people, because companies always owe people money, always. There are always a list of people that are owed money. Like if you're a distributor, you owe filmmakers money. You might, it might not be money you owe from six months ago. It might not be like criminally negligently late. It might just be like, oh, I pay filmmakers once a month and it's the fifth of the month. So I have, there's money that's come in. I haven't paid people yet. Like businesses owe people money. That's part of business that they owe people money. I'm not implying that any of these businesses are like, chronic debtors. I'm just saying there's always money coming in and money going out. And the day you go to business, there's probably money going out that is still owed. So when companies go to business, the worst case scenario, no one gets paid. Hopefully some people do get paid. And that is a thing. I remember once um, my longest term client, like a client from like 2004 to 2016, my last check from like the last time I invoiced them, I didn't get a check. And so I called them and he called me back and he's like, yeah, man, we went bankrupt, but I'm going to make sure everybody gets paid. And, um, you know, he owed me a small sum, the particular, the EP. It had been a big company at one point with like 20 employees. By the end, it was down to just the EP and an assistant. And then they went bust. Sometimes it also depends on what's happening with their filing, which is way out of my purview. But, you know, sometimes oh, yeah. you can be how bankruptcy law works and what happens to a company and how everything shakes out is sort of in a whole other world of knowledge. But I will say this is actually this isn't my anecdote. I'm going to say that this anecdote was something that came up on a panel I was on in June. I was on a panel at Enorama Inspire and it was all about like small business lessons for filmmakers and one of the people there who ran a production company was like, "Oh yeah, I had a client where I got word they were going out of business and I'm 6 foot 4 and 210 pounds and I drove over and I stood there until they paid me because there's always some money left in the account." And you know, the assumption is a business has gone under not because there's zero dollars in the account, but because they owe $100,000 and they only have $5,000 in the account. So his thought was, I want to make sure that whatever they have in the account, I'm top of the line to get paid and I get paid and I'm big. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously in the digital space where you don't know where the offices are and, you know, if you're a filmmaker in Omaha, you might not be able to, even if you're seven feet tall, you might be able, not be able to make it to the distributor offices and, and use your physical size to sit there quietly and, and get to the top of the line. It's always a frustrating situation. What often happens is there's some sort of, you know, the courts get involved, bankruptcy law uh, becomes a factor, and there's usually some sort of settlement process where parties that are owed money figure out an equitable agreement. So you're, if distributor owes you money, there are likely a lot of you, and, and the process of working out who gets paid is going to be interesting. Of the two times clients of mine or people who, big companies that owed me money that have gone under, one I got nothing, the other we got something. One of them got nothing. Now, I don't really, I'm not really angry at that one where I got nothing because they at least called me and talked to me about it. He called me, he talked to me about it. I was in Arkansas at the time at a steel distributor buying steel and I like stood in this alleyway in Arkansas talking to this Hollywood producer whose company had just gone under after like they'd been in business forever. And he explained to me what happened and why. He said he would make it right. Five years later, he hasn't. That check might still appear. I doubt it, I think, at this point. <laughs> I think, like, one one solution we can offer people is that if you can find out where a company that owes you money exists physically when they go bankrupt, you can probably use the internet to hire someone who's six foot four plus, 200 pounds plus, to show up you're gonna, in person you're, as you. You are going <laughs> to suggest that on the internet. Whoa. 
I'm not co-signing that suggestion. <laughs> well, last week I'm... we were playing it safe, right, with car safety and stuff. So this week, yeah, no. But seriously, yeah. on all jokes aside, we will fo- we are continuing to follow the distributor story yes. closely. We will have we have a writer working on it, trying to get some quotes, trying to get some details up on No Film School about what's going on and what filmmakers can expect and uh, what what's happening there because we still don't really have any information right now on their site. It says at this time, distributor is not accepting any new orders for questions, contact support at distributor.com. So there may be some answers for some, if you contact, but we will again, continue to keep people updated on what's happening there. It could affect a lot of people uh, negatively in a meaningful way. And I, and I just want to wrap with this distributor employees, like, if you're the distributor executive that fucked this up, like yeah, the internet's going to hate you for a while and you probably deserve it. But if you're just like a harmless distributor employee, you're going to take a lot of shit for this for a while from filmmakers. And I'm really sorry. It really sucks. Especially if you're just like a low ranking employee and you walked in and your your company disappeared and you no longer have a job. That fucking sucks. And company companies going bankrupt suck. And hopefully no one is to blame. Hopefully no one was embezzling money. Hopefully everyone was making the best possible decisions they could. And it just wasn't a viable business model anymore. Um, But all around, filmmakers who are getting um, involved in this, uh, we support you. Employees of distributor who might be losing their jobs. Uh, We support you and I hope everything works out for the best. I also hope it's all a big miscommunication. And in a week they'll be like, hey guys, we were just moving offices and our phone was off. Yeah. It could happen. And we turned off Twitter. It could happen. I mean, the turning off Twitter yeah. is actually the <laughs> biggest a, thing. That's we just the, uh, we took, a, we took a social media break, a cleanse. But I think that the the other thing to to mention that you're saying that I want to emphasize too is like it there are pe- people lose jobs when a company goes bankrupt, so a lot of people are affected negatively and as frustrating as it must be on one end, it's going to be frustrating and crushing on another end. So trying to find some empathy or sympathy for the other people also suffering instead of just animosity is, is a good path to take if you can find a way to do that. But I understand money is if you're owed money and you can't recoup it, that's terrible. So, so let's remember that the number one reason companies go bankrupt in my experience of people I know, is their clients being slow to pay them. So if you're a distributor, your big clients are Apple and Amazon and Hulu and the big cable companies, right? Like that do VOD. So there is one scenario where distributor went under and no one at distributor did anything bad, but the cable companies like Spectrum just took too long to pay them. That's like most companies go to business because their clients take too long to pay. So hopefully distributor had a great business model and it was super sustainable and it was just as simple as that. And there's no one to hate. It's also possible they never had a good business model and it was never sustainable. And that's a whole different animal. But I'm going to be following this story closely. I'm very curious to see how how things turn out. And if you work for a distributor, you should get in touch with George or the No Film School email and, and be like, hey, I can tell you what's going on. We were all at, you know, what's that retreat up on the coast? We're all, we were all in Big Sur <laughs> meditating for two weeks and we're back and ready to kick ass for you. If anybody has any information or any questions about it, feel free to reach out to us at editor at nofilmschool.com. We're curious and we want to get the right information out there. Up next in headlines, Ad Astra is out. If you are not a James Gray fan, go watch Little Odessa. Oh my God, it's so good. So um, Ad Astra is, you know, a very, I haven't seen it yet because I'm a one-year-old, but it is a, a big sci-fi epic by a 
indie darling of the 90s who's continued to make movies and good movies, but like Little Odessa, so good. And um, shot by Hoyt von Hoytema, who shot Dunkirk and all sorts of other movies, Interstellar, a bunch of movies we love. And um, there was a piece on the site this week that was really interesting about a technique they used that I had never even thought about, but they wanted to mix film and digital imagery simultaneously. And obviously this is something you can really easily do in post, right? I can like just overlay, like even media composer has composite modes now. However, they wanted to do it in camera. So they went out and they found an unused 3D rig. And now is where we make the joke about how many unused 3D rigs there must be lying around Los Angeles right now. Oh my God, I almost started a 3D rig company in 2010. And I am so glad I didn't. Um, You know, it was one of the things on the list of like, is this going to be a thing? Should we get into the 3D rig making business? And uh, then we did not. Uh, A few other people did, and some of them did well at it, but there's a lot of 3D lit rigs lying around. And so they rented a 3D rig. But what a lot of people forget about 3D rigs is you can also use a 3D rig to overlap a camera onto another camera perfectly. Because there's a split mirror, a 50-50 split mirror, and one camera is going into the mirror and another camera is going into a mirror at a different angle. So you can have two lenses that see the exact same thing feeding two different cameras. Well, now, why would you do that? So, for instance, I've been thinking about doing something like that because, you know, like when I do video tutorials and stuff like that, which I'm going to do more of um, in the future, I like to make eye contact with the lens. And I was thinking, oh, I'll get an old 3D rig and I'll rig up two cameras into it. So my wide shot and my close up will both be perfectly aligned. So when I make eye contact, I'm making eye contact with the wide shot and the close up. And then the editor can cut in between the two. Some nerdy YouTube shit. Or you could just get an iPhone... 11. <laughs> they should have shot Ad Astra on the iPhone 11. So, but what they wanted to do in Ad Astra is they wanted one camera shooting 35 millimeter because they shot that movie 35 millimeter, which badass. The trailer looks great. I can't re- wait to see it. Um, you know, 35 millimeter film. They wanted it, all of the aspects of that. But then the other camera was rigged up with an Alexa on it. Shoot it. And you can modify an Alexa to shoot infrared. You take part of the filtration pack on top of the sensor. Most sensors have an IR filter on them. You take it off the sensor. You can actually do this with most, like you can go online and pay somebody to take like the IR filter off your normal camera and you can have an IR camera. Usually then have to combine with a um, everything but IR filter on the lens. So only IR is making it through infrared. But they did that so that they would have these two images simultaneously captured so that they would have all of the data of that infrared image, which is going to have much darker skies, which is going to look like a moon. I mean, it's going to look like life on the moon where the sky is black, even in the middle of the day. And they're going to get that moony feeling. And one of the reasons they did that was for um, reflections. Like if it was just a normal shot with normal people in it, you would probably wouldn't have to go this far because it's pretty easy to paint out the sky in a normal shot, right? Like I have someone, I draw a little shape around them. I can replace a blue sky with blackness pretty easily. But if you look at, you know, the sequence that's linked in the story, there are all these very reflective helmets. And those very reflective helmets are going to be reflecting the sky. So by going in and shooting that shot infrared, they would get this beautiful infrared reflection of a dark sky on the helmet that would give them all the picture information to make it a much faster process in post-production. So I, I love this for like three reasons. One of the reasons I like it is because it's taking one tool and using it to do something it wasn't intended for, which is always one of my favorite things. Like, 
They took a 3D rig designed to do something else, and then they used it to shoot two identical shots. Always like that. I also like that because in the interview, Hoyt von Hoytema talks about shooting film for a bunch of different reasons. And one of the reasons he talks about, and he doesn't say it exactly like I'm about to say it, but he hints around on the idea that it's almost about discipline. Like, in a way, the restrictions that film comes with, the, like, I have to get everything right in the lens and I want everything perfectly captured in here. And all of those things that like bend your thought processes were part of the discipline of doing this job. And they thought that by having that discipline about how they would shoot it, they would be more grounded in the images they create. And I do have to say, like watching the the Moon Pirate chase sequence, which is an amazing name. I, I can't believe I get to say that sentence. Watching the Moon Pirate chase sequence in the Ad Astra clip it feels grounded in a in a way that a lot of a lot of sequences on the moon don't feel, and I think part of that was the discipline of shooting film, um, and a lot of that was shot practically in Death Valley, and then obviously digital effects were used to sort of composite it in a bunch of other ways. So those are the two big reasons I like it, and then the third reason I sort of liked the the window into the behind the scenes is I'm always a fan of any time um, infrared capture gets gets integrated into a production because infrared is this like, like it's all around us. Everywhere there's infrared light. Our eyes can't see it. But like we have these sensors that can see it and everything looks differently through it. So like I love the infrared sequences in Soy Cuba. I love the infrared sequences in those Hummer commercials Paul Offer shot a decade ago. And, um, or probably 15 years ago. Hummer was already out of business 10 years ago. And I, I love that they sort of used infrared as a way of capturing another view on the scene at the same time and then integrating it into the images. So it's a really fun article with a neat clip and I think you guys should totally check it out. The point you bring up that I think is important and interesting is the idea of grounding something by using it because, do you remember the movie Moon? Yeah, that movie's great. That's another example I feel like of somebody, and they did a lot of practical effects. And I think that there is, it's not just about backlash over what you know cgi does or that it doesn't look real enough it looks plenty real often i think it's more that some of these older techniques force us to um play closer to reality or to use more elements that are real or maybe for the viewer there are subtle indicators that what they're looking at isn't as fanciful or Maybe when you're existing all in the digital realm, you have the opportunity to do things that you could never do practically. Does that sort of make sense? Like if you're, if you, once you leave the, the physical realm of shooting in Death Valley on film, then suddenly you have all kinds of other options open up to you and then you can do all kinds of crazy things, right? So it's sort of like if you're writing with a pen and pencil which very few people would do anymore like writing a script but it forces you to make certain decisions about what you're doing before you get started so you don't have to erase a lot well i was gonna say if you haven't read the book how buildings learn it is like one of my favorite books for filmmakers it's by Stuart brand who sort of did the whole earth catalog in the 60s and 70s and how buildings buildings learn is this amazing book about the fact that like we tend to have this view of a building and i'm going to get to filmmaking i promise we have this view of a building that we have a plan we have these blueprints which is somewhat like a script and then we build a building and it is done which is somewhat like we go make a movie and 
in reality, Stuart Brand is arguing the entire life of a building is a continual process of the building learning and changing. So like everybody I know who's ever owned a house has renovated something. Any office you ever go to, they're constantly like reconfiguring something, moving this space over here. They're changing the skin. They're changing the bones. They're always, buildings are in these continually adaptable, growing, changing things in a way that we, that architects tend not to think about. And so his, Stuart Brand's argument was that architects are always more interesting and creative when they're like taking a church and trying to turn it into an office. They're always like looking at these interesting new ways where they're like, oh, well, I can't move that ceiling, but if I stick this little room under here, it'll be so cool. And that's how you end up with all these fascinating little things that are so creative and functional and cool. But then when you just give an architect an empty lot and you're like, this empty lot, build whatever you want. Um, often that blank canvas can be less creativity inspiring than a few good restrictions. And we talk about this a lot in our film school. At Fierstein, we talk about like, what are the right restrictions to put in place that actually encourage creativity? Like we're not interested in like arbitrary abstract restrictions just to make your life hard. But we really want to design restrictions that encourage and force you to use your brain in a different way and work around something in an interesting way. I mean, one of the pleasures of post is when you're you're stuck with now just only the footage you shot. And then you find a magic solution to a story problem and you're like, fuck yeah. And it's because you're so excited to have found a creative way to solve something within a limit. So I think the same thing sort of applies to what you're talking about. That sometimes with the digital space, the canvas just seems so epic that you end up with a phantom menace. It's all available to you. And it's like this giant sprawling, I can build anything. I, it's funny. I'm, I'm going to plug my own Twitter for a second because I tweeted yesterday. I saw so some uh, one of these great accounts I follow and no film school follows and we retweet them a lot. I, I can't remember the name right now, but it might be reconsidering cinema. But it, uh, one of them posted a little clip of uh, Orson Welles talking about the Magnificent Ambersons and how it was chopped up. And then Robert Wise, who is also a very famous filmmaker, director, and was an editor. West Side Story, right. but edited West, Kane. Right. And he had edited also on Magnificent Ambersons. So what's really interesting about the clip is that Robert Wise talks a lot about how his hands were tied because Orson Welles was off in some other country filming, I think, a documentary. Robert Wise in was Rio. in Hollywood. Yes, right. And Robert Wise was in Hollywood and the, the screenings were going terribly and the studio was pissed. And people were laughing at the movie and they had all these demands for recuts. So he was forced to kind of recut and reshoot stuff with the other people still, the associate producers still in town. And this is what they came to. And I'm only relaying the story because I retweeted it and I said, it's fascinating because to Orson Welles, it was this disaster that they that they messed with his, you know, his vision. But and and that often happens in the history of Hollywood. But Phantom Menace is this weird unique and not great example of where a director had nobody and nothing to rein him in or to say like you can't spend that or you can't do that or you can't try this and he gave us he delivered 100% exactly what was in the brain like out of that blank that uh, empty lot that was the building right and I find it fascinating on that level because we really don't see that very often it's a very unique like, it's a touchstone. Those three movies in Avatar are the only four movies in the history of cinema where people had 100%, I can do whatever the fuck I want. I can invent new trees. I can invent new histories. <laughs> and just like change, all the... you know, and, and oh, I'll, I'll redo it this way in this scene because I can. And no one's here yeah. to stop me. 
right? But the, I mean, but the interesting thing about Ambersons for me is also it's another reminder that you've got to be in the motherfucking room. Like, yeah. I, like Orson Welles is great. I, I love Kane. I still teach Kane all the time. Touch of Evil is great. I love a bunch of his movies. But like, you went to Rio yeah. to go to Carnival and like, you were probably having a really nice time. I'm just going to assume that you and the documentary crew had some pina coladas. I think you were single at the time. You might have gotten your flirt on. You left the room. Or he was with Rita Hayworth or something. I mean, whoever, he, whatever, he was, a, he was not a, what, look, it's Orson Welles. It was all excess and like, and yeah, I'm sure. But you have um, to be in the room. And here's the thing. Yes. If you were in LA, if he had been in LA and it had been him and Robert Wise as a team, because no matter, I mean, Robert Wise went on to be a powerful director. But the editor is never going to have the clout to put their foot down. You Definitely need the director then, in yeah. the room. Yes. The director needs to be there. And this is actually something that I notice a lot with this upcoming generation of directors is they don't feel the need to be in the room as much, especially in posts. They feel like, oh, I'm communicating and I'm watching it remotely or whatever. You've got to be in the room for the power struggle with the other stakeholders. If, if Wells had been in that edit room with Wise and been going to the meetings using all of his charm and personality on those executives, who knows what Amberson would have been. But if you go to Rio for two months in the middle of post on your movie, you're biting off too much. you got to be in the room. Yeah, I would also say that nobody likes conflict, but the the conflict that could exist between the filmmaker and the studio and the director or and the editor and whoever else is involved is possibly where you get the magic because like a good example of what you were talking about earlier restrictions like Casablanca along with Citizen Kane often cited as one of the great movies of all time was essentially written by committee you know like a lot of these things happen by accident it's not just one genius with one plan that that comes together in one specific way the way they intended it to come together that's what we'd like to think of the filmmaker as being but it's it's a communal effort that comes through forged by hardship and misery and and obstacle and so sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't and a good director manages that team and and uses that team to their best advantage right like if you look at the departed one of the visual themes of the departed is x's there's x's all over that movie x's are sort of foreshadowing death it's like the crossed out eyes in the old spy versus spy cartoons and like scorsese talks in interviews and i think in the american cinematographer interview where he's like we got everyone in the crew on the game of seeing how many X's we could sneak into this movie. So art department was putting X's in movies. The gaffer was like, oh, I can create a shadow X here. Like everyone on the team was gamified. So like Scorsese's directing the project. Scorsese has the visual idea for a theme. Scorsese is like directing that game. But then everyone's creativity is engaged in that game to create this really beautiful theme that helps unify the departed. So like, but again, you can't just do that and then fuck off to Rio. <laughs> um, I can't believe I'm so mad at Orson Welles, but I really want to see what a good version of Ambersons would be. All right. With that, we got to move on to tech news. Tech news this week. Our tech headline is Blackmagic. Blackmagic has had a lot this week. They had a really big IBC. I'm going to list a bunch of the little things, and then we're going to talk about the headline thing. They came out with a new mini video switcher, which is kind of cool. Um, they came out with, they have sort of a monitor recorder that's never really been as popular as the Atomos monitor recorder, but but it's coming. Like, And it's now fully supports 12G and Blackmagic RAW, so that's kind of cool, and maybe it'll get more popular. And then the big headline thing for Blackmagic out of IBC is they've announced a new firmware upgrade for the Blackmagic 
pocket. Wait for it. Wait for it. 4K, which is exciting because first off, the camera's not that old. It's only like a year and a half old. So the fact that the Blackmagic Pocket 6K gets all this news because it's the new one is cool. But I still think the 4K is a great choice, especially because it's like a grand now, and that includes Resolve. Um, and the Pocket the ha upgrade has two really cool marquee features. One of which is it now does anamorphic at 2.5K, which means you can use like anamorphic squeeze glass. And there's a lot of anamorphic glass coming out for micro four thirds. There's like a big, there's like a lot of affordable anamorphic lenses in that space now. So you can now natively shoot that in the camera all de-squeeze. So that's pretty cool. And then the other thing that's really cool is it'll do 2.6K resolution to 120 frames per second in Blackmagic RAW now. And I'm sorry, but that's crazy. So if you had told me, because whenever cameras come out, the number one thing people are always like, yeah, but it doesn't do slow-mo, right? I can't tell you the number of directors. I've been excited about something and they're like, yeah, but it doesn't do slow-mo, so I'm going to stick with the red or it doesn't do slow-mo, I'm going to stick with whatever. I mean, for a long time, Alexa didn't do slow-mo. And so, you know, you'd be on an Alexa job and you'd still have red for all your slow-mo. Slow-mo is a big deal. People are sort of slow-mo addicted. And getting 2.6K resolution up to 120 frames per second and let's not forget, 2.6K resolution is pretty good. Like, that's all Alexa gave us until two years ago. So, like, all of those Alexa movies that we love were all 2.5K because that's all Alexa shot. And 2.5K can be beautiful. Like, we don't need to obsess about 6K right now. Obviously, 2.5K, you can't reframe. But now we have this tiny little camera that weighs nothing, that you can put on a little stabilizer, that you can use a PL adapter with or an EF adapter with. And now this tiny little camera, which is like only a little bit more than a thousand, including Resolve Studio, also shoots 120 frames per second, 2.6K. So I think it's it's nice that Blackmagic is continuing to roll out interesting firmware upgrades. I think that's like a really great thing that they're doing, that they're continuing to push this stuff. And, and I'm excited about seeing this and I'm excited that the 4K is still in the mix. Up next, we actually have an Ask No Film School that is probably going to be one of our longer Ask No Film School questions. So we're, I'm going to go ahead and lay it on you. And then there is a lot to answer this one. So Grace Lee asks, I was recently given a script for a TV show and asked by the director writer to be a producer. We're in the very beginning stages, but I'm very excited and I'm not sure where to start. One, what steps do I need to take before talking to networks, investors, producers? What materials do I need? And two, do I need investors before I go to networks? So there is so much in this question. So I'm going to talk about a couple things first. One, I had an amazing idea for a TV show in like 2003 and I was interning for this producer and I pitched it to the producer and she was like, oh, that's great, but you can't do a TV show if you've never worked in TV. And I was like, what? And she's like, TV is the most conservative area of our industry. Like, you're an indie feature guy, write an indie feature, you can get an investor to do it and go do it. But you want to do a TV show, you will never get a TV show made if you have not already worked in TV. Now, that was 20 years ago, 16 years ago, and I don't think that advice is as true anymore as it was then. But I wanted to open with that advice because, A, that's the advice I was given, and I think it was super true in 2003. Um, I think that was good advice that I got from the producer I was interning for way back then. But I also think it's important to know the context of that advice as you think about how to go about getting the show made. Now, television's a little more open to untried creators, but television, because the investment is so huge, because it's like, you know, an indie feature, 
it's 90 minutes, it flops or whatever, it's a tax write-off. A, a season of a network show is a much different animal for a TV network. So, like, you have an uphill battle ahead of you. So I think George and I both have a bunch of ideas on things you should think about doing to get there. But I don't even know if you're in a place... I think there's other things you would do before immediately thinking it's time to go to networks. Yeah, I think that, like... Well, one thing we know about the way television works now is that there's a lot of platforms, right? There's all these different places. So 20 years ago, there were a lot, but 50, 40 years ago, there were four, <laughs> right? So like there's, so like the, the history of television is, is definitely entrenched in that sort of conservative mentality and things like the upfronts and relationships to the networks and advertisers and all of that. But it can't just be a one-off like, like you said, that doesn't go. And then it's like, okay, moving on. Um, that said, you know, it still has a lot, I think it's the industry still has a lot of that in it. And so going into my experience with pitching television was that, um, a couple times I had projects that we took to me and my writing partner would take to a producer or, you know, one of their development people, we would pitch it, they would like it. They would ask us to flesh out the treatment a little more. It's very important nowadays that writers be careful not to do too much writing for free. And we have posts about that. Um, so don't write on spec, but, uh, at the request of a production company or a producer, but, um, you might, take it to a producer they would be interested and then what happened to us because we hadn't had any real significant work in television at that time is they would try to partner us with a showrunner because a guy or a girl who's just come up with an idea for a tv show and their team if no one on the team has been in a room which means like in a writer's room on a show nobody's going to take a chance on it because they want to feel safe that there's somebody in there who really knows the way TV works, TV writing, like TV, like just managing the team. In a lot of ways, the showrunner or the executive producer is the director of a TV show, sort of like they're the, that that's like more like the one-to-one -one, the in terms of like overseeing the big picture creative stuff. So if you make a great, write a great pilot, Maybe you shoot a great sizzle. Maybe you have a great pitch deck and a treatment like all the things you're listing in the question. You still probably want to partner with eventually a producer who can attach a showrunner. I know it sounds like, what do I need two producers for? But, you know, or just a showrunner or somebody who's written and been on a couple shows in a couple rooms before that might be making the jump to showrunner. But it's so, there's so many rungs on this ladder that need to be there for a company like a, to be confident, if that makes sense. Like, and that's been my experience and what I've witnessed. And I've known people who um, kind of made the jump from writer to consulting producer on a show. And then that, that, that'll sort of help them down the path to being maybe a showrunner or somebody who has a great idea for a show and knows somebody who, created and was a showrunner on something else and then they'll partner with them and get it you know made and get it to network and get it to but there's just like gosh I don't know how to like there are so many hoops to go through so do you need investors before you go to networks I don't think you need investors I think you need um, experienced TV talent with you 
Um, maybe you want to sign up a on-screen talent who can also serve as a producer, who can also help you get that showrunner. But those pieces all kind of need to come together. Um, the first step for you, it sounds like, and Charles, I'll let you piggyback with anything else you have on it. But I think the first step here is work on putting together the most exciting you know, presentation you can with your team because it sounds like you have a creative team. Maybe that means a sizzle. Maybe that means um, like people are doing like like shooting spec pilots these days. Like maybe that means just writing it. Um, maybe it means a pitch deck. But that would be the first step is get your pitch all together. And then you start looking at like the next person on the rung, which might be a producer who can help you get a showrunner or a showrunner who can help you get some talent. Or even before a producer, maybe an agent. Like getting an agent that believes in you that might introduce you to producers might be a good next step. On Like getting that, that writer-director, you know, who wrote the script, getting them represented and then involving them in this conversation on strategy. But I would also say that what's different about 2019 from 20, 2003 is in 2003, I don't know of anybody who went from web series to series. I'm sure someone was doing web series in 2003. There totally were. There was that like... The droids, it was like droid, it was cops, but it was Star Wars droids, like stopping people and like looking for Wookiees and stuff. That was really funny in like 99, 2000. But those weren't getting turned into TV shows. Whereas now in the last five years, I mean, obviously Broad City is a played out example because those two are once in a lifetime t talents. But like there are now so many examples of if your idea is an amazing idea, but it's set in ancient Greece and involves like... Although, you know what? Ancient Greece, fuck it. Get some togas, find some ruins. Like, it, a cast of thousands is the big thing it would hard to do on a web series budget. But, like, literally, go to a web series and then just keep making it and build an audience for it. And, like, look, if you can get an agent and you can get a producer and you can get a showrunner with experience excited about it, that probably still stands a better chance of getting made in 2019. But all of those are maybes and all of those take time. And what's within your locus of control? Like, what about this pilot could you turn into a 10-episode web series that you shoot within your, like, weekends with your friends within your control? Because then you could just make it. And sometimes, like, you just make it and get it into a... Because there's so many series festivals now. Yes. I know people who have done it that way aside from broad city uh drunk history comes to mind they just put that thing on youtube um i was there i was like helping them out on set there was an amazing post on no film school actually a year ago about someone who did that and then she was really smart she shot it as a web series but then she cut 20 minutes of it as a short film and she put that in short film festivals and then she cut like it into episodes and she put it into episodic festivals and it got her meetings at hbo yeah. So like, yeah. And again, like, you know, my personal story, we did a short, uh, we got managers and agents interested. We met with them. They wanted to hear the rest of our ideas. They sent us out to pitches. We went to, you know, there's, there's, here's the thing I know for a fact, even if you get a manager and agent, which you're right, Charles is a great step after this, they're still going to need you to, to go sell this thing somehow to somebody else. They may help you get in that room and get that meeting, but they, whatever happens, you're going to need to show somebody what this idea is and demonstrate why it's great for TV. And there's a whole lot of reasons, things, uh, boxes you have to check off for that. And I personally believe my opinion is that things that are visual 
are better than words on a page because there's a, a lot of people put words on a page out there in front of executives and agents and development people. If you can put something that's really going to grab their attention visually, then you're more likely to stick in their mind because they read a lot. Yes. And it's faster to watch something than to read it. All right. Great. That was a really great question. Hopefully we had some not particularly negative answers. I think we had some positive <laughs> options for you. Um, it's really so hard. Been, yeah. It's hard to make a TV show, but people do it. It happens. It's easier so, now. I, yeah. You know. Yeah. It's easier now. And I cannot wait wait to see your show when you have made your show. Hit us up and let us know about it. Um, so I'm I'm Charles Hain. My book came out a couple weeks ago called Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmakers. Check that out on Amazon. I also have a podcast called The Week in Film Tech that is just tech news. You can check that out. Um, I'm speaking at Adorama on October 30th about lighting with apps. So if you're in the New York tri-state area, come out to that. Or you can live stream it on the Adorama Facebook page. You can always follow me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, all of them are like at Charles Hain. And you can read all my stuff at No Film School. And I'm George Edelman, and I'm the editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find me on Twitter at George Edelman, uh, and you can find all kinds of great content that we talked about today, stuff we didn't talk about today, on nofilmschool.com, um, and you'll find all of Charles's posts and hopefully some video reviews coming soon, too. Woohoo! Alrighty. Have fun making movies, folks. See you guys soon. Bye.